Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our text for our sermon is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 16. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, was an issue going on among the Jewish Christians at this time that the book of uh, Epistle of Hebrews is written? The external form of the law that was given specifically to the nation of Israel to point to the coming of Christ had been fulfilled by Christ. But they missed many of its ceremonies and many of the visual things. They wanted to go back to it. So the author writes this explaining they were fulfilled in Christ. If you look at the first table of the law, we can see that. The first word, and each of those flows out of the next, out of the prior, I'm sorry. So the first one tells us who we are to worship. God. Now the Israelites had been told they couldn't even make an image of God, or if there was a false God, they couldn't even make a drawing of that to preserve it for history so other people would know how that God was worshipped. No. That was fulfilled by Christ, because Christ is God. Those who do not worship Christ as the God-man are not saved. The second commandment, then, flows right out of that. Tells us how and why to worship God. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? Because God, when he died on the cross for you and rose, when you were baptized... He took the waters of your baptism like a magic marker and wrote his name on you. Property of the Lord. Why you call? How do you call upon him? How do you worship him? You call upon that very name which represents everything he does for you. You turn to him in prayer. You hear his word, which then goes and flows into the next commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, if you were an Israelite before Christ had taken on human flesh and died for us, That meant Saturday. You set aside Saturday. You did no unnecessary work. And if your cattle was was dying or something, you could save it. But you didn't work. You rested from your labor. But there was another rest we often forget. If you lived in Jerusalem, the word of God was especially read on this day. And if you lived in a town outside of Jerusalem, they sent a Levite, a priest, to your town. And he read the word of God to you. So there was two kinds of rest, rest from work and spiritual rest. This commandment was fulfilled. The Christians could worship on Sunday or any time they wanted, yet they missed all the ceremonies that went with that. And so our text today 
applies all of that, how that rest is fulfilled in Christ. In today's sermon theme, we see the rest God's word gives to you. So verse 9 tells us, if we translate uh, uh, the inspired Greek uh, literally, so then a Sabbath rest continues being left over for the people of God. The literal Sabbath day was fulfilled. It meant to point to Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. But there's something that, like leftovers, sometimes some leftovers like chili, you heat it up the next day and it tastes even better. There's something that remains behind. It's intentionally remaining behind for our good. In fact, the one who enters into God's cessation from work, this person has completely ceased from his works, just as God ceased from his own works. God creates everything on the sixth day. On the seventh day, he rests. On the eighth day, he does not create the duck-billed Pilatipus. He set up the rules to run creation. He is very active in it. God is all-powerful. He does not need to take a snooze. He's not breaking a sweat. He does this to set an example for you and I. He created our bodies to need a break. And he wants us to make sure at least one day out of the week that we nourish our body by resting it. But there's more. As I said, the people would hear on the Sabbath the word of the Lord proclaimed. Jesus, the word became flesh and won salvation for us. And so we gather, it doesn't have to be on the Sabbath, we gather regularly to hear the word of God. As Luther said in his explanation to the third commandment, we, do not, we should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching or his word, but gladly hear, learn, and obey it. And it gives us a rest. You see, the natural religion of man is you earn salvation. Like a pry bar, you do enough good works that you rip open the gates of heaven and obligate God to save you. That's not God's religion. Christ did the work for you. He pried open the gates of hell and pulled you and I out of the slavery to the devil. So we have a rest from earning our salvation. That is yours now. And we come to the word all the time to rest in that because our sinful nature wants to run back to it by the minute. A rest. Salvation's a free gift. The rest it gives us. But there's another rest as well because we always have a guilty conscience. That sinful nature is always there fighting against us. It gives us a rest because it removes our guilt. How often do we think back years before and remember a sin and say, oh my goodness, I sinned against this person, I hurt their feelings. Sometimes if we run into that person, we find out we're remembering wrong. But God says, he gives us rest. He says, I knew that sin, I removed it. What about the ones we forget completely? Oh man, I never confess this when God says, I knew it, I removed it. Rest. We battle with that sinful nature because of the new man in us. And when we hear the word of God, it's like giving steroids to our new man so it can beat up the old man. It gives us rest. Rest from trying to earn salvation. Rest from guilt. Rest from the pressures of this world. Ultimately, Christ won heaven for you and I. There will be work in heaven as there was work in paradise, but it won't be toilsome. Our sinful nature will be removed. So we have rest now from the word of God, and that word keeps us in our faith so that we get God's eternal rest that he planned for us to have. The rest God's word gives to you is a rest from both spiritual and physical labors. So we move on. Verse 11 says, therefore, let us hasten to enter into that cessation from work so that someone does not fall within the boundaries of that very same traceable pattern of disobedience. Hard to translate the Greek word. It's hurry to do it, 
But while hurrying, you busy yourself in it. Let us hurry to busy ourselves in that cessation from work. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Because you can't hurry and busy yourself in something that's not work. How do we do that? We hear the word of God and the word gives us rest. You have hurried to busy yourself in the word because you have come to hear it proclaimed to you this morning. And he mentions the Old Testament, going back, because these are people, who uh, the Jewish Christians who wanted to go back to those old ceremonies. He points out it's a traceable pattern. So it's not the exactly same, but the pattern was, if you look at the early, as God lead, leads Israel out of Egypt, he sends these plagues, Pharaoh comes after him, he parts the Red Sea, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he literally speaks the Ten Commandments, and they tremble in fear, and they tell Moses, Go talk to God for us. Oh, but in between they complained because God who had provided the plagues, they didn't think he could provide food. And they didn't think he could provide water. And they complained. Moses goes up to the mountain. They make a golden calf and worship it. Time and time again, the pattern was they heard, they saw the word of God and they hardened their hearts to it and died in unbelief. How do we, if, if salvation is a free gift, which it is, and that faith becomes ours through the word, how do we keep ourselves from falling into that same pattern of rejecting the word? The Holy Spirit builds that into our new person that we busy ourselves in the word. It means we want to hear it. We do our devotions. We do these things. When we're in the word, the Holy Spirit works through that word to keep us from falling. It's a rest we hurry to busy ourselves in. And he explains more about that word and its work for you and I in verse 12. He says, in fact, the word of God is living and effectively active. Some translate it effective, some translate active. It's both. Right there reminds us of Isaiah where God says, my word does not return to me empty handed. It's either hardening a heart or softening a heart, hardening a heart that is rejecting it. God always has a plan. His word always works. It's, and it's sharper above and beyond every kind of two-edged sword. And it keeps on slicing right to the point of the division between soul and spirit. Now, in English, those two words are synonyms. They mean the same thing. The Greek word suke and panoima, there's a subtle difference. But theologians argue all the time over what that subtle difference is. Not God's word slices right through. It gets it. When Jesus appeared to John when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, he'll write down that vision. We get the book of Revelation. Jesus appears to him. His tongue is a two-edged sword. The author of Hebrews here refers to the word of God as a two-edged sword. Very sharp. Two sides, two teachings of scripture. The law, it doesn't save us. It damns us. It shows us our sin. It cuts away by exposing our excuses and showing our sins, the gospel, the blood of Christ, then having our sins exposed, it washes it away. It cuts away our sin with the blood of Christ. Sin gone. And so he explains further, he says that it, it uh, slices through the point of the vision between soul and spirit and both joints and marrows. He's saying it divides up joints and even marrow. Now, to see marrow, what do you got to do? You got, usually, even today, they take a saw and cut through the bone. There's a hard exterior to protect that marrow, but the Word of God exposes it, no problem. Cuts right into it. Something even that is hidden away and protected gets exposed. That's a comfort for believers because we have our pet sins. 
We hide them away. We lie to ourselves about them. God's word exposes it, removes it. His word can read our thoughts and our minds. And he says that next. He says, and it's able to discern skilled in judging between what the heart is thinking and the way it's thinking about it. We can lie to ourselves, but we can't lie to God. That is scary. But then the new man finds wonderful comfort in us, the faith that God has given us, again, because he exposes our sin and he removes it. Things that you and I don't even know are going on, things behind the scenes, God is all-knowing and he knows it and he knows how he's using it for us. So when problems come upon us, we can say, God knows better than I, I'll let God be God and let his word take care of this. So we hurry to busy ourselves in that word, which gives us the ability to trust in him even in those times when our sinful nature makes us worry, makes us want to be concerned, makes us doubt. Verse 13 continues how that word cuts away. It says, and so no creature is hidden in the sight of God. Can't burrow deep enough in the earth that God can, it can be hidden from God. It says, yet all things are, are, are bare, they're naked and have been vulnerably exposed in respect to the eyes of God. The Greek word is used when you open up a throat so that you can cut the juggler vein. Vulnerably exposed. My sinful nature and yours is vulnerably exposed before God. All of the baloney excuses it gives and all of its lies, gone. The word cuts at that. But it does so to give us new life. The good news that Jesus, that rest we get that he did the work for us so it can give us a new life that is protected in Christ. Now the next part in this often is confusingly translated because if we translate the Greek literally it says, before whom the word to us. That's it. So you've got to supply a verb, is. Now our text had translated that, to whom we must give an account. But notice it said before whom the word. What has been the subject of our text? The word. By the way, this is the same construction in John when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. There it is. It's before God and the word was God. We have this picture of the word standing before God. It it can be to our disadvantage if we reject it. Then it testifies I was proclaimed to that person and they hardened their heart against me. But... For those of us who God has given faith, the word says this one is a lamb. This one has the blood of Christ. The word stands before between us and God. And we cannot help but to see this picture of Christ, true God, who is our intercessor, who is our judge. He's our attorney and our judge. That gives me great comfort when I look at salvation. So in all this, we see the rest we hurry to busy ourselves in is the word of God. And that word works to show us our sin and our savior, exposing our sin and pouring the blood of Christ upon us. We arrive at the last part of our sermon, verses 14 through 16. We already talked about how the word also seems to be pointing to Christ as our intercessor. In verse 14, talking to people who miss having a high priest in all the ceremony says, Therefore, since we do have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, namely Jesus, the Son of God, let us keep on firmly holding on to this confession. The high priest that the Jewish people had in the temple with his works that he did, once a year he would announce the sins of the nation on the scapegoat and they would chase it out of town, usually off a cliff. 
the high priest who went to the one place nobody else was allowed to go before the throne of God to sprinkle the blood of the Lamb to atone for the sins of the people. He was meant to picture our true high priest, Christ. That high priest of the Old Testament, before he could do those things, had to have the blood of an animal pointing to Christ's blood on him to wash him clean. Jesus is true God. He's our intercessor. He ascended to heaven. He's opened the gates of heaven for you and I. He's before the throne of God. He is that word that intercedes for us. He is the sacrifice that has atoned for the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we hold firmly to that confession. What confession? Jesus is our high priest who is one salvation for us. So we hold to it. We cling to it. It's a rest won by the high priest that we confess. That's what the point of the Bible is about, the Word of God. So we're told in verse 15, in fact, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, the Greek word there is, with our weakness caused by our illness. Yet one who's been tested in accordance with everything as we are, in accordance with the same way, apart from sin. We have a disease, and it makes us weak. So weak that we could never earn our salvation. So weak that we could never remove our, our, our sin. It's called original sin. Our priest, true God, became true man. He lived in our place. Christ did not protect himself from the hardships of this world. Tempted in ways you and I couldn't even stand up to as we read when the devil uh, tempted him out in the desert in other ways. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He saw his father die. As he was at the cross, he sees the tears of his mother and it tugs at his heartstrings. He understands. And there's another way. Besides the fact that he took on our human flesh, the mystical union of all believers means we have been united to Christ as a branch to the vine. So it means he literally feels your pain because he is connected to you now through that Holy Spirit. True God is not going to suffer your pain unless he has in mind to use it for your good. Tempted in every way except for he didn't have sin. That's the difference. The devil couldn't get a foothold in. There was nothing for it to stick to because he didn't have sin. This is what makes him our high priest who can sympathize, who understands, who is our intercessor, who we pray to and turn to. And so we're told in verse 16, therefore let us keep on approaching the throne of grace. Now this picture of a throne that rules over grace, that delegates it out. Why? Because that's where our high priest is. He's sitting on that throne. Why do we keep on approaching? How do we approach the throne of grace? With confidence. My high priest is sitting on that throne. The one who died for you and me. He's the one. If he's already done that, we can be confident. We take our problems to him. We trust in him. It says, so that we may receive mercy and so that we may find grace with a view to timely help. Christ pours his mercy upon us from the throne of grace that he won for us. With timely help. Not according to our timing. According to God's perfect timing. Because he knows all things. Arrest from the worries and burdens of this world because the, we have a high priest whom we confess and we know he pours his mercy and grace upon us. So as we've taken our little journey through the epistle here, this section of the Hebrews, uh, to the, we see the rest God's word gives to you. 
It's a rest from spiritual and physical labors. A rest we hurry to busy ourselves in because the word works to show our sin and our Savior. Having our Savior shown to us, it's a rest won by that Savior, our High Priest, whom we confess. Amen. Therefore, since we have a great High Priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Amen.